Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Today, we're joined by Maria, the latest addition to the famed Kindred Partnership. She joined Kindred from New York-based VC fund RRE, where she spent five years both building their platform team from scratch and leading investments into some of their most exciting breakout companies. Prior to that, she had a decade-long operating career, spanning roles in startups and large corporations. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving it a review, and following us on LinkedIn. We've just launched our first partner podcast, The Next Gen VC, hosted by Audrey and Ved. The podcast is a from Gen Z to Gen Z and all about how to break into VC. So give it a listen. And if you don't think it's for you, share it with someone else. Maria, welcome to the European VC. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? We're doing well. We're excited to have you. And before we start, we always like to do the same thing, which is Tell us, how the hell did you end up in this world of venture? And what are the learnings there for other uh, emerging managers that are listening in right now? I had a pretty winding path, as I guess a lot of people do into venture. So I am originally from Wisconsin, middle of the US, and I studied industrial engineering. So I worked in supply chain, which is a pretty typical path out of uni. Worked for GE Healthcare, spent four years there doing various leadership roles, all in supply chain and operations environments, like leading a manufacturing line, moving manufacturing abroad, those types of things. And I realized all the jobs I loved were ambiguous, which doesn't look like most of GE supply chain. And so that's what made me think I would like startups. So I went back to business school, which is one expensive way to make a change. Um, but it worked It worked in my worth case. It? Was it worth it, Maria? In my case, yes, for sure. So I worked with startups abroad in India and Brazil. And then in the New York ecosystem, I scaled with a the startup there. And I went into venture because a friend of mine pointed out that I was always drawn to helping founders and spending my spare time doing that. And so she was like, you should just go into venture. And I'm like, that is a really good idea. But it's quite an opaque industry. And so a lot of people don't know how to get in. And let me tell you, getting in five years out of business school is not an ideal time to join venture. But I I always joke with people. I'm like, there's two paths to getting into venture. You kind of either just like happen to find yourself in venture or you try really freaking hard. I don't have any advice for the first, but I do have advice for the second because that's what I did. So (laughs) I got declined by like half the industry in New York. But then I met half the industry in New York by doing that. And I also fell into crypto that summer, which was 2015 and Bitcoin was $200. At that point, then focused really deeply on crypto and talking to funds that were doing that in 2015. And there was only three. And I luckily got offers from two and joined RRE. And that's how I got into venture. And I'm now at Kindred. Maria, we love diving into advice for emerging managers. So maybe not as much uh, the aspiring managers, those wanting to break in, but more the ones that want to raise their own funds, because that's also something that you've done. Well, I mean, I did it with other people, to be fair. So um, I've joined after they've done it, which is different than raising yourself for sure. I guess two things. So I know you don't want advice for people going into venture, but I do think creating FOMO and going deeper in industries is helpful. I think if you're launching your own fund, there's a few ways to do it. So I think you can have had an operator startup experience, but a lot of people have that experience. So unless you've like really built your own billion dollar, multi-billion dollar company, it's probably not enough just to be an operator unless you have a specific lens. It's helpful to have some track record. So 
People like quoting angel investing a lot. I don't really love that personally, mostly because I probably, I still don't really have money to angel invest. So maybe I don't like that as a strategy. It feels very like exclusive to people who have money to invest. But there are other ways you can build a track record, right? You can help companies and you can work with other companies. So I think anything you can point to is some track record of working with startups that have then scaled is helpful. And also helpful if you have an actual track record in a fund. So before you start a fund for the first time, you probably have to have some experience in venture or some ability to point to a track record of some form. Maria, I don't know. Have you heard of these guys? They're called the European VC and they do syndicates as low as 1K. So <laughs> Exactly, exactly. But that's actually my point. I now, I jokingly call myself a micro angel because I still don't really have money to invest because like a lot of my paycheck goes back into my own fund anyway. <laughs> But I have been writing these like 2K checks into things. So I just started. That's the exact point, right? That I think that for direct startup investing, we're starting to have some opportunities in your because of people like Boban and Odin and so on, which is super valuable. And then, you know, we've got us that we're saying, okay, but someone needs to also allow access yeah. into funds. That's a different set of experiences. I'm just trying to tee you guys up, you know, so you can promote that, them. That's all we do. So uh, whenever we find a horn, we go and toot in it. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So... Let's look at it, Maria. We are here to talk about the big topic that everyone knows that Kindred is amazing for, which is founder community development. And of course, I think that I'm not wrong in saying that you guys were the first one to pioneer founder carry sharing schemes, at least in Europe. I don't know. Maybe you can correct me if there were some people doing it in the US. But I'd love to hear your thinking. Why did you start doing that? And, and also as much as possible about your reflections, because we know a lot of people going through these uh, conversations in their funds right now. I don't know if we were technically the first. We did it around the same time as one other fund in the U.S., but we didn't really talk to each other. So I don't know technically who was first, but we were definitely the first in Europe. And we have advised a few other funds and shared documents on how to do it. And I think one other fund has done it in Europe. I know a few others are thinking about it, but just to explain what it is, we take a significant chunk of our carry pool. So we're talking 20%. So just to give you some context, we're a pre-seed seed fund. We're GP only, so we don't have investment analysts or associates. And we are an equal partnership. So we share equally the carry. And then we give an equal portion of that, which is 20%, back to our community. So a tiny amount of that goes to some advisors we have, but the vast majority of that just goes directly to founders. So the difference between a Kimdred term sheet and another term sheet from a European VC would be, or US for that matter, that you get upside in the companies in the fund with you. So you don't have to pay anything. You don't have to do anything. You just decide, along with the Kindred investment, you become essentially a carry holder in the fund. And we do that out of, I guess, just truthfully, a respect for founders and an empathy for what they're going through. I think we've all been ex-operators. Everyone in Kindred has operated in startups and tried to found their own startups. Notice I didn't necessarily say successfully in most cases or all cases, but we have done it. And that's actually pretty rare in Europe. I think in the US, 60% of VCs are ex-operators. In Europe, it's 8%. But I think it just gives you an empathy for the founders. It is extremely hard to be a founder. And it is an extremely lonely experience. And they are the ones delivering value for each other. And so we wanted them to share in that upside. And often if you fail, right, even the best VCs have a 40% write-off rate. That write-off is not because that founder wasn't incredible. You back incredible people all the time. It's because the market didn't pan out, something changed, something happened. So we want them to share in the upside. And we also want to encourage them to help each other. Because what we found is even if I started a company five years ago or 10 years ago, Some of those learnings will still be relevant today. A ton of those learnings will no longer be relevant, right? I can be Reed Hoffman. I can be whoever. started whatever company I want. I can be Elon Musk. But if you haven't hired a programmer in the last three months, it probably looks different than when you were doing it five years ago. And so you can't over-contextualize. And so we find that founders learn best from other founders building right now. And that has really translated for us. So 
We get a lot of great deal flow, by the way, as a side note, because I know there's a lot of LPs listening as well and, and GPs. 40% of our top of funnel comes from our founder network, but 60% of our closed deals comes from our founder network. So we're getting extremely high quality deal flow, which makes sense because if you think about it, when you first want to found a company, you don't call a VC, right? You don't call a VC until your pitch deck is ready and everything is perfect. The first person you call is another founder. And then they're like, hey, you should talk to Kindred. But they also help each other. And we really want to incentivize that community and also have people share in the upside. I want to tease something out of you, Maria. The loyal listeners of the European VC will remember that in the early days, we had an episode talking with another GP about carry sharing mechanisms and his position on it. The reply we got at the time was something along the lines of the carry is the payment from our LPs to the manager of the portfolio. It's not an alignment mechanism with the founders. I'd love to ask you to comment on this view because it is a view that exists in the market. It's not that it's wrong or that it's correct, but I'd love to hear your comment to it. I mean, I think that perspective takes a very governance-driven view, right? That the LP and the GP are aligned and the founder's not. I think that's a very outdated view, in my opinion. I actually, I don't know who said it, so I don't know who I'm offending, but I think the truth is... not offending anyone. We'll make sure to notify him, of course. (laughs) Exactly. We'll shoot it to him as a snippet. (laughs) I think, to be honest, it probably speaks to the ecosystem and where it was at that time and where it is now. I think part of why Kindred was founded, right, by Layla and Russell and Mark and a lot of the partners that I consider myself extremely grateful and privileged to work with every day was because they saw, like, Layla founded a biotech startup in SF before she moved to London and started Kindred. And she felt like the European ecosystem was not founder-centric and founder-serving the way the U.S. market has been for a long time. And so I think it speaks to a mindset shift. But like at the end of the day, we always like to say venture is actually not an asset class. It's an access class. And if you want to have access to the best founders, like I think at the end of the day, it is aligned with LPs and is aligned with Carrie. Like to say that they're not aligned is just 100% against my bones and how I view venture. But somebody else wants to view it that way, so be it. That means, of course, also everyone listening and hears obviously that at the heart of your model is community. And this thinking of getting founders working and helping each other, I'd love to just dive into that philosophically. Where do you start and then go towards the practice of it? What kind of mechanisms? One part Mm -hmm. is carry sharing, but there's a bunch of other things as well. What do you see working the best and so on? So I think, you know, founders are also busy too. So it's like we offer them a lot of things and then they choose what they want to take. So for example, in the first 18 months, we really focus a lot on founders specifically because we're so early. Pre-seed and seed, it's like often just the founders. And so we have coaching where we help people find a coach and we pay for coaching for the first year as part of our investment. Um, We also have founder forums where we connect them to other founders at similar stages so they can share things, almost like a YPO type forum if you're familiar with that. But, you know, you get six people together in clusters kind of every so often to share some of the trials and tribulations of being a founder. And then as you scale, so kind of 12 to 18 months on, we actually have a lot of programs for your broader team. So not only do we help with like ESG and thinking through DNI, we also help with connecting you to your peers. So things like product and marketing groups. We also have management training. This is something I'm personally very passionate about, but a lot of young people at startups get promoted and they're really good at getting towards a goal, which is how they got promoted, but they've never managed a team before. And so they don't know how to give feedback, how to have tough conversations. So I would just say more broadly, we have a whole offering for different moments along the life cycle of the company. And we have ways to engage. Like we actually just this week, because a lot of the stuff in the market is changing right now, did a call with our founders to talk about 
what happens in a down market? How should you manage your runway and your company and your culture? How do you think about listening to customers the right way? And so we had people like Mark from our team who's been through many downturns from the venture side, but we also just tapped into our founders, right? Christian is a founder of Paddle. It's our first unicorn actually out of Fund One. And he shared a lot of his perspective on what he has seen work well or not well with their customers today. And it's really tapping into that founder knowledge. So we create events like that. Back to the controversial point earlier of like, you know, is the GP and the founder really aligned? I do think sometimes there's a misconception. We spend all of our day thinking about helping founders. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of value add stuff we can do. And I came from the platform side. I used to be on the platform side of VC before I was investing. And I really do think we can be helpful to founders, right? We can help with business development introductions. We can help with customer introductions. We can help with like, hey, I need a press room. Hey, I need this. Whatever the challenge of the moment is, we can always help. But I actually think that that is a very myopic view because the truth is there's also value destructive VCs. And if you actually look back on the 10-year life cycle of building a company and you ask the founder, was it a good VC to work with or not? One of my favorite founders, he's like the litmus test of if you have the right VC founder relationship is What happens when shit goes wrong? When shit goes wrong, do you want to pick up the phone and call that investor and they're going to actually help you, make you feel better? And maybe even just listen. Maybe they have no solutions. Or they'll say like, hey, this other founder had a similar problem. Or are you scared to call them? And you have to create a PowerPoint and you have to like call them in three weeks when it's mostly solved and make it sound better. And like, but the truth is, is what actually makes us founder friendly or not is not the coaching and it's not the carry share. All those things help create the right environment, but it's how we show up every single day for the next 10 years for that founder. That's what actually matters, I think, at the end of the day. I want to go completely sideways with this part now, just because I'm very curious, Maria. You know, you said, you know, when talking about this, you know, it's kind of where the market was and also the vision that, you know, Europe wasn't founder-centric. That's also part of the origin story of, of Kindred. But we are in a funny time now. We're seeing a lot of very interesting doomsday-like uh, headlines, which I always find exciting. And a lot of theories about what's happening to the market and the um, you know power dynamics. Is it going to be less founder-centric, more founder-centric? I'd love to have your views on that. Yeah, I think, look, for sure, it's going to be less founder-centric. You're going to see some crazy rounds. You're going to see pay-to-play rounds. You're going to see really aggressive terms. You're going to see some really crazy stuff happen. Absolutely. No doubt about it. I think founders that have been raising in the last two or arguably even 10 years, maybe 15, just in up cycles, haven't really felt it. And so last year it was like, why wouldn't I take twice as much money at twice the valuation for the same dilution? That seems reasonable until you're now in this year and you have to raise against that valuation. I think for VCs, VCs often, if you look at the data, make good returns in down markets. I think the question is, is it better for founders? I think the best founders will still raise on great terms. I just had a company raise on what looks like really good terms, which you know you never know is going to happen in this market. Yeah. But I also think it will weed out companies that would have gotten funded otherwise. And it will force founders to think about things differently, which you could argue is better or worse, right? I think at the end of the day, raising on a 50x multiple valuation, at some point the music stops as you become a public company anyway. So like there is some reality that's in between that's helpful, but I am a bit worried for what's going to happen to founders. And I hope people take the right kinds of money and don't, you know, overly dilute themselves and get into tricky situations. Now you brought up what I was actually going to ask after, which is, do you think it will weed out, you know, specific types of companies? Do you think the same will happen on the GP side? It's been crazy the last years, right? It's a really good question. It takes longer in the data for it to show, but as the private rounds, and it really depends, are you growth? Are you seed? Did you back a lot of stuff that was overhyped or not? And also depends on the sector, right? So I do a lot of crypto web three and there's just so much dry powder in that sector right now that we have seen valuations drop slightly since the beginning of the year, but they're still not where the rest of the market is. So it really depends on the subsector you're in and the stage you're in. But we, yes, we will definitely see a shakeout of GPs and 
startups, in my view, in a moment like this. Time for self-reflection, right? Do you think that we as VCs both should have adjusted our behavior, both in funds that we're going into, but also in funds that we're raising ourselves? Yes, but I think people were being thought, I mean, I think it depends on the person, right? But like we spent a lot of time thinking about this last year. In fact, I pushed our partnership to talk about it and there was a lot of different opinions, but the market was going crazy, right? And people were doing things at big valuations and we were like, do we participate? Do we not? And there was a big question mark. And I think we were like, you know what? At the end of the day, if you're going to deploy capital three times as quickly, it needs to only be because you believe that there's three times as good a company is being built or they're being built three times as faster, neither of which we believed last year. So we didn't actually. So like a lot of people deployed their fund in 18 months instead of three years. We can be totally wrong for doing this, but we had a lot of conversations about it and we didn't do that. We still deployed on the typical three-year cycle because we think there's an advantage to having different vintage moments in your fund. And so we're trying to play the long game on that, but could we have been wrong? Totally. And did we get a little caught up in it? Of course. Like there are some things where we have a pretty hardcore ownership threshold and there was definitely stuff at the end of last year that we pushed that on. And so I think that You do have to respond to the market, but you do have to be thoughtful about you're building a 10-year fund cycle and it's you, you only get to deploy in three years of that. And so thinking through how to do that thoughtfully is really important. It's really interesting that you bring up that strong belief of having you know exposure to the different vintages you know, in your investment strategy. We we're having a, a chat last week with an LP and we were, we were talking a bit about this topic, a fund of fund investor. And he was like, you know, mm-hmm. you should always try to have an old dude in the room. <laughs> you know, who's been through it because like, you're talking about diversification. Totally. You're talking about risk. <laughs> that's venture for you, right? A hundred percent. Well, I mean, that's why I was laughing because I was the one that was like, I almost got caught up in it more than the rest of my team. And they were like, whoa, 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 mm-hmm. guys, like, yes, you want to be in the best deals, but at the same time, like with the right. But that's why I think that venture. At we're its... also the crypto investor. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> venture at its finest is basically a group of people called partners who trust each other enough to bring diverse perspectives and really push each other. And I think the best decisions get made when you have enough, like we call it love and affection, but enough respect and affection for your partnership that you can push each other. And it's funny that you say the old dude in the room, but like I was lucky RRE was a multi-generational firm. Kindred is a multi-generational firm. It absolutely matters. It absolutely matters. We were in January of this year, right? We're now in June and we're seeing the thick of it. Mark on our team looked at us all and was like in one of the first management meetings of the year. And he's like, this is going to be really ugly. So we need to do a scrub down, like real scrub down. So our fund one, the reserves were basically out almost as much like as we had planned them to be. And we as a team went around the table and did an aggressive scrub down of fund one and fund two. We already had like reserves of what we would put against each company, the typical way you would have done it for the last five years. But we now took a different lens and said, imagine that every round is really ugly. Every round is pay to play. Every round is you have to protect your position, not just decide if you want to do it. Every round has terms you haven't seen before. In that environment, how much money do we need to protect our ownership? How do we think about funding it? What are some reserves? And we kind of changed some of our capital allocation strategy and our reserve strategy to accommodate the fact that we think we're going to be in some ugly situations in the next 12 to 18 months. Can we deep dive a bit into that? Because I think some of our listeners might have not followed 100% what you're saying and the impact that has on both founders, but also, you know, LPs and the whole yeah. ecosystem around you. So I'd love for you to give as much detail as you feel comfortable with in explaining what that exercise was. 
Yes, and there's some of it that I don't know if I can share because I want to protect what company. So I'll, I'll give you some ways you yeah. can do it, um, more so than like, <laughs> this is exactly how we did it. To listeners out there, if there are pauses in what Maria says, it's because we just cut it out and then leave it there as a, as a cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I'm as candid as you get. So if I restrain myself, there's always a, a, it's always protecting a founder if I'm, or like a person. It's more like exits that might not be announced yet is what I mean. So in terms of the broader reserve strategy, so let's say like we, we have about 50 plus reserves in each fund. So like we make an investment in a company and then we're planning to, you know, continue to invest in that company. And then usually when we run out of reserves in a fund, we'll spin up an SPV to keep our ownership, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty typical stuff. In an environment like this, like at some point, you kind of use up your fund and you, you're looking to run out of the reserves on purpose. And then you're on to the next fund and you're on to the next portfolio and et cetera. However, in an environment like this, if you don't have money from that fund to protect that position and there's like, pay-to-play rounds, meaning you now have a growth round where you have really ugly terms come in and somebody says, unless people put in a check into this round, a new check or a check to a certain amount, you wipe out your ownership and you really dilute yourself. So in a situation like that, you need more reserves than you did before. Now, you can't have really planned for this because it's a very unusual situation. So you could plan for it for your existing open funds where you didn't already do reserves. But when we look at our fund one, where our reserves are mostly down, the way we thought about it is if there's events, like let's say there's an exit event where we bring liquidity to LPs, we could choose to recycle some of that. Or even if it's outside the recycle period, we could choose to ask for an exception to hold it in case we need it and then deploy it after. You could also think about like if you're in your open fund, you could decide to change your thresholds. Instead of having 50% reserves, you could change 60% reserves to keep a little bit more because there might be some interesting rounds. So it kind of depends on what your strategy is, absolutely, as a fund. But I think there are ways you can think about supporting companies through a downturn differently than you might in a regular market. In that situation, uh, did you also think about, you know, it's almost uh, the opposite of an opportunity fund, but, you know, uh, saying to existing LPs, we know that this is coming, it's likely, and then prepping them in, we're going to have some deals that need to happen really quick, and we likely can't protect all of them inside the existing fund. We didn't have that yet. I mean, I, I don't know that we're going to get to that point. I, as it currently stands, when we looked at it, we didn't have stuff where we're like, we're going to be screwed. So we didn't raise any alarms yet because we didn't feel like we needed to. But we haven't had any, anything uh, like that uh, at the moment. But uh, we'll see where it goes. Am I right to say it's the first time that you personally go through an exercise like this inside of a VC firm, right? I guess not really, because we did it at my last fund when COVID hit pretty aggressively yeah. as well. So, and in COVID, I don't think we saw as many down rounds as we will in this moment, but I saw some bad behavior in the pandemic and I saw some founders get really hurt. And at actually at our founder retreat last September, it was really funny because we had like 50 founders. So we do a retreat, we get them all together. And actually to the carry share point earlier, we put a number up on the screen and we say, based on how the fund is currently tracking, this is how much you're making. <laughs> if you want this number to go up, Go talk to someone over drinks and find a way to help them. That's cool. Just think about it for a minute, just just to make the carry share real. Carry happens when you have an exit event. So even though our founders that have been there in Fund One six years ago, we know we've just started to now start getting exit events because you really get them in year seven to ten. But all of a sudden, when one company exits, so like Andreas, if your company exits, David just like gets home and gets a fifty thousand dollar check in the mail. I was like, oh, interesting. This is cool. So like, you know, it doesn't come as one chunk. It comes piecemeal as things happen with the portfolio. But anyway, we had them for this retreat and we were showing them that. 
And then we had a whole conversation about the fundraising dynamic in the moment, which in September of last year was completely different <laughs> than this one. And somebody basically asked a good question, said, I have this term sheet on the table and I have this term sheet on the table. What should I do? And I think a lot of founders in the room and some VCs in the room also as well. We had Harry Stebbins there as well uh, as a guest. And like, there's a lot of perspectives in the room. And a lot of people said, you should just take more money, obviously. And I actually brought up two very specific examples in the COVID pandemic and said, I think people are forgetting that there are bad scenarios out there and there are down rounds. So if you put yourself too ahead of your skis and you don't have a way to fund the company, like at the end of the day, protecting your dilution matters if there's an outcome that you have it towards. And if you don't get to an outcome and you don't survive, it's irrelevant. I'd love to ask you to reflect on the learnings, both, you know, that exercise in COVID times, yeah. but today, because I think that is something that we don't listen to very often out there. Assuming that I have any wisdom is, is a wrong assumption anyhow, but it made <laughs> me reflect, I think, differently on how I think about valuations. At the end of the day, most VCs I know often miss the best companies because they were too valuation sensitive and they missed on price. But then the flip side is also true. The only way to make money, as far as I know, is buy low, sell high, right? At the highest level. And so I think it does make you thoughtful about ownership and valuation. Ironically, the biggest learning that comes to mind when you ask me like that is actually the opposite, is that I think that VCs and people in this market in LPs, everyone is very reactive in a downturn. And I think it's the right thing to do, right? Help your companies think through hiring, firing. I mean, there were some really interesting learnings I had in the pandemic where like, how do you fire a third of your workforce over Zoom when you can't get in person? How do you do that thoughtfully? Like it was a very specific yeah. moment. So I think that being hands-on for your companies when things are bad is really important. But I also think sometimes one of the things that I've realized I should focus on more is I also think you need to really be there when things are going well. So I don't really mean in the market in this case, but I think often when VCs see that a company is doing really well, they almost don't help as much, not even help is the right word, but there's less pushing because they're like, oh, it's working. But a lot of times what works from point A to point B isn't from point B to yeah. point C. And I actually, I thought about this more recently because I had Tom on my podcast and he was saying that, you know, you don't always want cheerleader VCs and you sometimes need the moments where you should be changing strategy and you should be doing something differently. And so I've been pushing myself to think like, am I pushing the right way or being there enough the right way when things are going well versus when things are going poorly? It's also interesting because we can all reflect on, you know, social media is interesting in the sense that you still have the wall of Michael Jackson sitting there saying, as long as the music plays, keep dancing. And then, you know, you scroll up a couple of times and then there's more recent news and then it says the, the market is burning. <laughs> I think that that reflects pretty well what's been happening in the market that, you know, everyone looked at it and said, this can't be right, but well, the music is playing and what can I do? <laughs> uh, so it's been an interesting time. Also, it was hard to know. I had this conversation a lot in the back half of last year. I was like, is it going to stay, even if the market goes down, will it affect venture? was a real question. Now it's true. It is affecting venture, but there is a lot of money moving into privates in general. And a lot of people want access to these types of companies, right? And so there is a lot of dry powder. And so you almost can get an artificially inflated bubble in the industry anyway. If anyone predicts the future, run the other direction because I don't think anyone knows. I certainly don't know. Okay, so let me just get back to the topic that got us started, which is career sharing, founder career sharing. I'd love to just dive in for the last bit of this interview about how you spoke to LPs about it, because I think that is the big question that many probably struggles with, that if you're inside VC then it can make a lot of sense. But fact of the matter is that most LPs are not very VC savvy. So how do you generate the narrative around a founder caring scheme? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of those conversations, to be fair, my other partners had, I'm having them now as part of Fund 3, but it's already quite established. 
I think it's much harder when they were having the conversations in fund one. But I also think it helps you choose the right LPs. The right LPs totally got it from day one. And quite frankly, it's more, the carry share doesn't come from them. It comes from us. Like I will make less carry because it goes to founders and it doesn't come from anyone else. So in some ways, if you frame it differently and you're like, you know, you would give carry to an analyst who works at the fund and you we give it to our, you know, our CFO, our head of platform, everyone has carry. And I feel like the same way if you work at a startup, you would have stock options and you would have some way of being in the upside. So I think it depends on how you frame it. It does make sense. But I think it's more you get pushed back. We got pushed back also on the amount, right? They're like, well, you could just do it with like a marketing level amount, like a two or 5%. We're like, but that's not why we're doing it. Like, So I think one thing you should see is if you start to see people do it around the ecosystem, you should ask how much they're doing, right? Because I think a lot of people will do it for like a 1% to 2% of the carry pool, but they're not doing 20% of the carry pool. So I think the LPs cared less because it came from us, but I think they were not sure why we were doing it and if it would work. And there was definitely a lot of questions about the motivation, but I think as it plays out, it becomes a lot clearer that it works. David and I are thinking about for the GPs that we're investing in, putting together a GP carry sharing scheme. So actually this would be your LP then allowing you to mix carry or get carry from other GPs in the ecosystem. I'd love to hear on air your reflections on that. Is that crazy or would that be something that you think, ah, that would work? No, I think it's interesting, right? They have like founder swaps and stuff like that. And I think to your point, there's a diversification piece and there's, and it's different strategies, right? We have a different, very different seed and pre-seed strategy than seed camp does. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if somebody wanted to have different shares of different pools, it makes a lot of sense to me. It makes more sense when there's a reason for those people to also just have community and build a community and help each other. That is where we're coming from, right? Because we're seeing that the big difference between the US and Europe really is how connected the VC ecosystem is and how connected thus also the founders are. That is our dream, right? That we have a much closer-knit ecosystem that might either be within verticals, but it doesn't have to, right? Because there's so much to learn about building a VC as a firm. (laughs) It doesn't have to be about investing per se. So to be fair, I feel like Europe is super collaborative right now. Um, Maybe it won't always be, uh, but... Yeah, so I absolutely agree. Collaborative, but not connected, right? Meaning that I think that we're seeing a very good collaborative spirit in Europe. But we have so many doing very exciting things in Southern Europe that don't know what's happening in Northern Europe and so on. But yes, we have the exact right mindset around it in Europe, at least the new generation. (laughs) I think that it's getting much better. It's getting more and more connected all the time. Um, I mean, I was super lucky to start my venture career in New York, which is an extremely connected collaborative ecosystem. I never was in venture in SF, so I shouldn't comment But I will say that I hear it's a lot less collaborative than it is in New York or Europe. And I really prefer to be in a collaborative environment. And and there's lots of people that we'll co-invest with and I'll compete with deals as well. And like, I tell them openly, like you and I will compete on a deal and that's fine. Like the founder is going to choose at the end of the day, they're choosing a person as much as they're choosing a fund. And you just acknowledge that and you can still help each other. Can I just ask you to... um help our listeners understand how significant it being a 20% carry sharing is, you know, so there's some benchmarks out there and it's, this is really hard data to get. That's why I'm asking if you could explain how relevant it is, you know, how much does a venture partner role get, for example, how much do platform roles get? It is a big chunk when we look at what these roles also get individually, right? Yeah. I mean, I could pull it up on my computer. I just had this up a few weeks ago for some other reason. I don't have the numbers top of mind. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure like a venture partner would maybe get like 5 to 6% if we're being generous. 
just to give you some benchmark. And we're also an equal partnership at Kindred, which is pretty unusual, right? Benchmark yeah. it, a few others. But a lot of times the managing partners or the kind of initial GPs will have a vast, vast majority of the economics. And the newer partners will have a lot less of the economics and will probably grow over time. But this is why succession planning is a huge topic for VCs and LPs every single moment of every single day in venture. We'll have to do an event or an episode on that one because that's a really cool topic. Maria, we're running out of time, unfortunately, and we always end the episodes with a quick fire round. That is when we ask you a couple of quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? I'm ready. So first question, and this one is off script, actually. For anyone in VC who wants to learn more about crypto or Web3, what would you recommend them to do? Oh, that's a tough one. I have a starter kit. I can send you some links to my favorite articles. You can put them underneath the show notes or something. <laughs> but mostly I would just don't be afraid to jump in. It, you're never going to know everything. Even if you spend 120% of your time in the space, you will never know everything. So just go in with that mentality and just be willing to learn and talk to people who are building today. Talk to founders, talk to VCs, and don't be afraid to ask the stupid questions or you'll never learn the space. Second question of the quick fire round is in venture and particularly in the area where you invest, so Web3, crypto, etc. What areas excite you the most that other people don't really feel that excited about? It's a good question. And I, I, we are a generalist fund, so I should say I don't just do, I, I do financial services, nah, I do traditional, you know. Keep quick it fire. to the crypto sorry, sorry. Quick fire. That, nah, nah, let's <laughs> keep it to the crypto point because if you can find a spot that no one is excited about in crypto, I want to hear it. <laughs> That's the problem. That's also why I said I was a general investor in this question, if you want to know, because we do a lot of infrastructure in Crypto Web 3, and I think a lot of people are interested in that right now. So I don't think there's... I guess what I'll answer it with is, I don't like the term DeFi very much, which is a bit controversial, but I just feel like a lot of what's being built right now that's being called DeFi is not actually decentralized. So let's just stop calling it that. There's regulated, unregulated, and I think there's actually some really incredible unregulated use cases, especially in emerging markets that are outside of gaming that are really impactful for humanity. And I think that that's being largely missed. And I also think a lot of you see spending time in Ethereum and Solana, where I also spend time, but they're ignoring the Bitcoin Lightning ecosystem in my view. So like, I would say I'm spending more time there than most VCs are. Third question for the quickfire round is, what are your top tips for emerging VCs who are out there in Europe fundraising? Narrative, narrative, narrative. Yes, they care about the track record. At the end of the day, people are backing people. And I think is emerging managers is extra hard because a lot of LPs who say they back emerging managers don't really back until fund three or whatnot. And so it's really hard, but the more unique your story is and the more, it's the same advice we give founders, but you forget it when you're fundraising. Yeah. It isn't just about the numbers. It is truly, who are you? Why are you doing this? And why does that enable you to have a unique set of founders that you're building great relationships with in the next 10 years? This comes from you who, you guys at Kindred are... If anyone, you know, a story in, in itself, because, <laughs> you know, there's so much about Kindred that's different. You have had what I think many people in, in the market recognize. You built something that was different from what was already there. So that was really a narrative that was exciting, not just a track record that was being bet on. It's a really interesting point. So when I moved to Europe, it was quite serendipitous. I wasn't planning to move as on maternity leave, different story in the non-quick fire round. But... I talked to a bunch of funds and one of the main reasons I was attracted to Kindred from the first second is that they are doing something different and we are willing to. It's not even just the carry share. Every time we like raise a fund, we're like, what should we be doing different? We're going to launch this new program as part of Fund 3 that I'll tell you about more later. But the point is, ironically, we as an asset class back some of the most innovative stuff you've ever seen in your life, right? Like we're literally at the cutting edge mm -hmm. of what's being built in the yeah. world. And yet we as an asset class 
don't really change much of the way we do things and how we do things. And so to me, it was important, A, fundamentally, philosophically to me to be at a place that would do something different. But also, I just think it matters for returns. The story doesn't matter for your fundraisers if you don't have returns, right? And you have to have good enough returns that you can keep doing this job. And so at the end of the day, I fundamentally believe that it will change so quickly in the next 10 years that if you're not willing to adapt, you will not make it in the next 10 years. With that fourth and final question, what can we expect in the future from Maria? More of the same, I guess we'll say. More of <laughs> thinking about founders in a more holistic sense of who's going to be the future founders of Europe and how do we make sure we support those communities wherever we find them. And honestly, you'll see evolution. We're trying to do venture better. Don't know if we can or will or whatnot, but we'll take feedback and always trying to learn and do better so you can expect evolution. That's beautiful. We will expect evolution then. Thanks a million for joining us, Maria. This was so much fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. We've just launched our first partner podcast, The Next Gen VC, hosted by Audrey and Ved. The podcast is a from Gen Z to Gen Z and all about how to break into VC. So give it a listen. And if you don't think it's for you, share it with someone else.